When the drinks finally hit her, she said, I'm no quitter, but I finally quit living on dreams. I'm hungry for laughter and here ever after, I'm after whatever the other life brings. In the mirror I saw him and I closely watched him, I thought how he looked out of place. He came to the woman who sat there beside me. He had a strange look on his face. Ghoulish day to every single one of you. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your morning, day, night, whenever and wherever you're listening from. It is greatly appreciated. Those tunes, as always, are courtesy of the lovely Bobby Mackey, and I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. I have a special guest joining me this week. He was on my old radio show a few years back. Thinking back, I think it was back in 2018. And I had such a great time talking with him. Harrison Smith is a movie director, a producer, and a phenomenal writer as well. And has been in the movie biz for several years. Some of his amazing movies include The Fields, Camp Dread, Zombie Killers, Six Degrees of Hell, and Death House. Harrison resides in the gorgeous Pennsylvania. You know, I've got a ton of listeners from all over that state. He works to create high-quality motion pictures on modest budgets with domestic and international success. Harrison Smith, my friend, you know, it has been a while since our last epic conversation, and that was during my radio days. Welcome to Paranormal Prowlers Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back, and I really appreciate it, and hope all your listeners are doing well with this whole mess out there. I know. I have to keep telling myself that this will pass, you know, that they went through the Spanish flu, the, you know, bubonic plague, and those all passed. This will pass, too. It's just playing the waiting game. Well, and you know, we have a, not to get off on a diatribe on this, but we also have something that they didn't have during the Spanish flu or even polio, and that is mass doomsayers on social media and streaming media that just can't wait to publish articles on how we're all screwed. And and that brings such a depressive attitude. And look, I'm not saying what's happening out there isn't serious, but what I'm saying is human beings are resilient. We will get through this, like you said. This is, you know, this is not the Black Plague. I'm not, look, people have died. Almost a million people, half a million people in this country have died already. I'm not downplaying that at all. Yeah. What I'm saying is we have a a social media network out there that just just wants to terrify and and constantly beat us down is what it seems like instead of trying to, to get us all organized and together. I think that's my point, and that is we don't have these elements trying to split us all up, if that makes sense. Right. Absolutely. I agree with you. And another thing is, is that what drives me crazy is, are those people saying, oh, the world's gonna, we're screwed. Like you said, the world's gonna end on this day. And I'm like, you know, in my opinion, anyway, yes, for each and every one of us, the world will end when we die. (laughs) Drives me crazy. But yeah, you're right. It just kind of when bad things like this happen, those people that you just kind of like want to ring, it's like, Look, I had somebody in the industry tell me in the first weeks of this when the collapse started and the stock market fell, you know, basically about a year ago, 
told me, you know, that's it. You better, you better start looking for a whole new career because the indie film industry and possibly even the studio industry, it's all gone. It, it, it's finished. The movie industry is over. Jeez. And coming from this person who was in the know, I'm like, oh my God. And then I got off the phone and I'm like, I'm, I'm not succumbing to this. Yeah. That, that's ridiculous. The sky is falling attitude that we have already. Right. You know, instead of let's analyze the situation, let's look at the different possibilities. I'm not in denial. Like I was fully ready for a fallback if something should happen, but I wasn't ready to go. Well, I guess it's time to hang up everything, you know, and then three months later, I'm in production shooting my monster movie. So there you go. Oh, and I want to hear about that monster movie here in a little while, but that's the right attitude. I mean, it's like you can't let that stuff get you down. You just got to keep moving forward and be prepared for something to happen. But also just hope that something doesn't. But speaking of Hollywood and the industry, the world recently lost a phenomenally gifted and talented woman, that being Cloris Leachman. She was actually in your first movie. Am I correct when I say that, Harrison? Your first movie was The Fields? That is correct. Yeah. Talk, if you will, about that movie itself and just what it was like working with such a comedic legend. Well, that's a great question. And um, I'll, I'll start it off by saying it was obviously it was my first film. I did not direct it. I wrote and I produced it. It's based on the true story of what happened to me as a boy mm. uh, growing up on my grandparents' farm. Uh, the incidents of the house being attacked, the dogs being killed, uh, all of that, that all happened. And uh, Cloris plays my grandmother in the film. <laughs> and she is, her performance as my grandmother, I always say this is, it, it wasn't she played my grandmother, she channeled my grandmother. That is the closest I will ever get again to seeing my grandmother alive, was wow. watching Cloris in that movie. That's exactly how my grandmother was. <laughs> and making the film uh, was not a very pleasant experience. There were a lot of production problems, a lot of issues with the film behind the scenes that uh, I, I, even though a lot, it's done well, it's done very well. It's one of those that I always say, you know, I'm glad people appreciate it. I'm glad they like it. They seem to respond to it because it's such a personal story. Uh, yeah. However, it's not the movie I would have made. There, there, there would have been some big changes. I would have stuck closer to my script. But that's the way that it goes. And one of the most pleasant experiences about making the movie was working with Cloris. It's very interesting when you said we just lost Cloris. Cloris abhorred the idea of people saying that people passed away. She used to correct people on set. Because somebody asked me, because my mother had died not much more before we started shooting the film. Oh. And somebody said, oh, when did your mother pass away? And she slapped them with a fly swatter. She goes, people die. They don't pass away. They die. And she hated that word. So when people have come to me for interviews or, you know, a couple commentaries on Cloris, I always say that she died. Yeah. Because I, I'm not going to put myself in quotes because she'll kick my ass wherever she is right now <laughs> to say, you know, you stupid son of a bitch. And that's how she talked. It, <laughs> is not, it is not pass away. People die. Right. She was wonderful to work with. And, you know, the, the best part was, it's, it's one of those things that when you sit with her, it's almost like you just want to sit and listen to her. You don't want to talk. It's just like, Cloris, tell me everything. And I mean, I got to hear so many great stories about her life from, you know, her, her beauty pageant days all the way through Mary Tyler Moore, uh, running and raising hell with Marlon Brando and Gene <laughs> Hackman and Jack Nicholson. And I mean, she was a legend. And 
what I mean by that is, is more than she was on TV. She was on Broadway. She was on Dancing with the Stars. What I mean is she really lived life. When she came to our set, she was nursing a fractured knee from skiing in Vail. Wow. <laughs> so, at 83. <laughs> Oh, my God. Incredible. Wow. 83 years old. This woman's out in the slopes. <laughs> you know? That's and, awesome. And that's, that's what made her so terrific. She spoke five languages fluently. Hmm. Now, she couldn't speak more, but I know of five. And one of them was Japanese. Oh, my God. Okay? Wow. Yeah, people don't know that about her. Also, she was a, a professional piano player. Like, concert pianist is what she was. She could have had a career just booking Carnegie Hall kind of thing. And she didn't do that. She just, she loved acting. Yeah. And when I was growing up with my real grandmother, we used to watch Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> and her favorite character in that show was Cloris Leachman's Phyllis. Wow. And my nanny used to be like, oh, there's Phyllis. Phyllis is on tonight. You know, that kind of thing. I love Phyllis. <laughs> so it was really important to me to try to get Cloris for that role. And when she read the script, she came to set and she said, first, I want to talk to you about your script. And I'm like, okay. She said, you know, people my age, she was 83. She goes, people my age, we don't get these kind of roles anymore, these dramatic roles. She goes, look, they always cast me as the foul-mouthed grandma for comedy. And she goes, I'll play it. She goes, I'll take their money, you know. <laughs> but she said to to actually do a dramatic role, and, th and this I am quoting her, she said, this is the best dramatic script I've read since the last picture show for this kind of role. Wow. That's quite that's, the compliment. That was a huge compliment. Wow. And a feather in my cap for that. And she said it in front of the directors, which really made me feel good, too. So playing my grandmother was really, I mean, she absorbed everything. Like She's like, tell me everything about your grandmother. How did she hold her cigarette? And I said, well, I have video of her. And, I, and she came over to my home one night, and we spent all evening going through scrapbooks and watching video. And we're talking, we went to like 1 in the morning, and she didn't nod off, she didn't doze off. She's like, you can tell she's processing. So what she did, she she said, do you have a professional stylist around here, hairstylist in the way that a studio, I'd like to go, and I want to get my hair. She had her hair cut and dyed exactly like my grandmother's that's awesome oh my god that's great you know she was such a a you know not quintessential consummate performer you know it was it was just amazing to watch her work and when she came back from this visit it was like she was transformed you know she was transformed into gladys and she she walked like her she watched the video of how my grandmother walked she insisted on a fat suit like to get padded underneath her, her clothing because believe it or not, at 83, Chloris was still a very shapely woman. <laughs> yeah, she, had a, she had a great figure on her at 83. Yeah. She was too attractive to be my grandmother is really what it was. And she said, well, I want to, your grandmother seemed very heavy, you know, above the waist kind of thing. And she had very skinny legs. So I want to do that. I want to recreate that. So she fought with both the production not me, but she fought with production to get this this like fat padding to put underneath. And it's like, in the end, this is why the woman won an Oscar, right? This is right. why. Because she so threw herself into that role. So not to, to make a whole interview about Cloris, but one, one great story about her was 
about her personality, which I think sums it all up. And that is one night we, we went to dinner. So I, we were driving on this road. I have my truck and I'm driving her personally. And she saw this sunset out over the, the mountainside off this cliff. She's like, Oh no, no, pull, pull the truck over, pull the truck over. <laughs> so pull over. And we just start looking out the window at this sunset. And I went to speak and she shushes me. She's like, Shh, gotta be quiet. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And then finally she sighed really heavy. And she said, I'm not ready to go yet. And I said, well, we can sit here. I said, you know, we have, we have like 90 minutes for dinner. I said, the place is, and she's like, no, not that. She goes, life. Mm. I'm, I'm having too much fun is what she said. Wow. And I said, well, I, I hope you're not planning at least not to leave until we finish the film. Is what <laughs> I told and she joked about that. And then she pointed at me. She said, you know what your problem is? I said, please, Cloris, enlighten me. I love when people tell me what my problem is. <laughs> and she said, uh, she goes, see right there. She goes, you got a wise mouth. <laughs> she said, you don't appreciate the things you have right now. You're always worried. You're always moving on. You're always moving, 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 moving. You never stop and appreciate a moment like this. Mm. And she was right. So when I got the news that she had died, not passed away, yeah, I said uh, right out, I said, well, it looks like Cloris was finally ready to go. That's what it was. What an incredible story. And I think I first want to say before I forget, how neat is that that your grandma loved Cloris so much and that she little did she know that she's portraying her and, you know, went to so many lengths to actually be like her. That's just pretty heartwarming, and it's neat that you guys, you know, not only worked together, but like you told me earlier before we started recording, you guys stayed in contact. You guys stayed yeah, friends, and I yep. love that. There was, and, and I know, I, I told you, as soon as I heard that Cloris died, I thought of you, because when we had that radio show segment, what was it, like maybe two or three years ago, That was my favorite part when you were talking about Chloris. And so when I heard she died, I automatically thought about, oh, Harrison, you know, and that's when I was like, I need to get you back on. I've wanted you back on anyways. And so I thought that was kind of neat. But I know you shared one story that was pretty funny. Wasn't it like when you guys were ending something? And Oh, yeah, it was the last day of shooting. And she said, you know, nobody's crying. Nobody's getting upset. We're not doing that. I don't like goodbyes. (laughs) <laughs> and so we were like, okay, you know, basically, I remember I said to her, all right, Lynn lady, get the fuck out. That's what I said. <laughs> get the fuck out of here. And so she got in the car and her, her, she was in a Land Rover. Her son was driving her. They get down to the edge of the farm, right at the driveway where the driveway meets the road. They stopped and everybody's waving, you know, <laughs> and the window went down and she stuck her arm out and gave us all the finger. <laughs> that was my favorite just like she gave us all the finger that (laughs) is so awesome there goes chloris (laughs) i love it i i loved that part so much i i just i could see her doing that i can see this like sweet little old lady like oh no fuck you guys (laughs) she was there was nothing sweet actually there was she was extremely sweet when i took her to dinner by the way when we got to the restaurant they had a piano there 
she played for like a half hour for the customers. Oh, what a treat. What a she treat. She just played and somebody had a baby and she held their baby and she got the oh. pictures taken with the baby. And I'm wow. sure when she died, there's somebody out there showing that kid, look, that's the lady that held you. Oh, I got goosebumps when you said that. That would be, yeah, I could picture that now. That's awesome. Yeah, I have a photo of her playing the piano. I took a picture on my phone and I still have that. And she's having a grand old time. And then I went out to California on business and I said, hey, I'm in town. And so I met her down in uh, Santa Monica, down by the pier. And we went to a bar and she ended up going behind the bar. She kicked the bartender out. And she started serving people drinks. Oh and this one, this one guy looks right at her and goes, hey, aren't you Cora Sleepman? She goes, I am. What the fuck are you drinking? Oh, my God. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> That's and then great. on the way out, there was this big athletic dude. Like, he could have been a linebacker, right? He's smoking this cigarette. <laughs> and she walked right up to him, and she had to reach up to do it. And she took the cigarette out of his mouth. She threw it on the ground. She hated smoking. She hated it. And she stomped on the cigarette and she goes, do you know what smoking makes you? And this guy is looking at her and then he looks at me and you can tell he's processing like, is this Cloris Leachman? Right? (laughs) Yeah. And he's like staring at her like he knows this lady. He knows who she is. And, you know, Malcolm in the middle. And you know what I mean? Like raising hope, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then she looks at him. He goes, no, what does it make me? And she points at him. She goes, boring that's what she said <laughs> and oh then the God. guy looks at me and goes is that Cloris Leach I go yeah it's Cloris Leach he's like oh all right like <laughs> this guy could have killed her right you know? right he was wow. a big dude he was a big dude but yeah she's just boring <laughs> that's what she yelled so no I I have no regrets about her uh dying and moving on she lived a very very colorful and full and enriching life and she won every entertainment award that there is and she's still i believe the record holder for most emmys won by a single actress i think she won 11 emmys yeah i saw that i i did a little research after she died and i i saw that and i was like that is just so amazing and it's See, no you gotta catch yourself don't you you want yes after she I, on, I know i right? did almost... she passed away right i almost said it too and i was like no, <laughs> I don't yeah. want to get slapped with the fly swatter. <laughs> um, and the best part was, like, I got some great moments with her. Like, in my yeah. kitchen, we were drinking wine, and she got up and did Frau Blucher for me. She did, he was my boyfriend. And I'm like, this is <laughs> awesome. And then we were sitting in a diner one night, and they had fruit cup as a dessert on the menu. And, of course, Nurse Diesel, her big line in high anxiety is, there'll be no fruit cup if you're tardy. You know, that kind of yeah. thing. So I said, hey, Cloris. They got fruit cup. She goes, there will be no fruit cup if you are tardy. And it was like, that is awesome. I got her to do Nurse Diesel and Frau Blucher for me. So That's great. Yeah. yeah. It's great memories that you have with such a legendary woman. And so that's that's great. And those will those will definitely stay with you. She may be gone physically, but spiritually, she's there. She's here. Oh, yes. yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, she has no regrets. You know, like I said, she she truly lived a terrific life. Right. So, yeah, um, she was just simply ready to go. Maybe all of us didn't want her to go, but she was ready. Fine. So absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Harrison, we're going to be talking a little bit about paranormal and what have you. But I just wanted, if you will, 
There was one more story that you shared with me a while back, and I thought it was like such a neat one. And it was about Tara Reid when she was on that same movie. And it was a pretty heartwarming thing that, again, people don't know because it was kind of like super behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great story. Um, really showed a lot about her character. And, you know, it's funny. Uh, real quick, I'll, I'll go into, you know, right now on, on social media, uh, the, the crusade of the moment, as I like to call them, is everybody now. It's cool now to apologize to Britney Spears for the absolute awful mistreatment of her in the media about, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. And um, a little longer than that, maybe, too. And, you know, you look at this and you see how, you know, fame can just destroy somebody and, and destroyed by the very people that built you up. And, uh, you know, now it's cool, you know, oh, now everybody's attacking, you know, Justin Timberlake and everybody's speaking out because of this documentary. And that's great. I mean, the, the girl I feel is owed that. And I, I remembered uh, speaking one time to a group of, of students uh, who all thought that this was really funny when Britney, you know, melted down, shaved her head, attacked the paparazzi with the umbrella, if you remember all those pictures. I do, and yeah. I said, you know, I said, you guys think this is funny. I said, you've never read Brave New World. I said, everybody was worried about our society because of technology turning into 1984. And instead, everybody forgot about Brave New World, where we no longer know the difference between entertainment and reality. And I said, you guys are laughing at a human being having a major breakdown, right. an emotional breakdown. And I said, she is performing for your amusement. I said, imagine that was your sister. Imagine that's your mother, okay? And that's splashed all over the news. And it's it's part of TMZ, and it's part of this. And, you know, the only people that I remember sticking up for Britney Spears at that time uh, were Trey Parker and Matt Stone from South Park. I love those guys. They're awesome. And they did that, right, they did that terrific episode on all of that where uh spears commits suicide she tries to commit suicide and on the episode and basically blows off the top of her skull and they still parade her around you know and they they the paparazzi still chase her and and they're they're making the point that you know look that this girl could easily do this and then it'll be oh what a tragedy she right. was so young she was so beautiful she was so talented i mean think about if judy garland grew up now Okay, like I remember and look, I love the Howard Stern show and I've been on the Howard Stern show, but I remember when they started playing these tapes, there's a website, I think, out there called Celebrity Rants mm. and somebody got a hold of Judy Garland's private tape. She was going to write a memoir and she started recording uh, her thoughts and they're mostly incoherent because she's she's drunk and she's stoned on pills yeah. while doing it. And she's so angry. Mm. And, you know, you're you're hearing you're hearing such venom coming from a, a girl that was raised up by the studio system and abused by the studio system. Yeah. And it's being played now for our entertainment. Like they're all sitting around and they're laughing at this. It's like, you know, this woman's going through like hell, right? Like right. Her, her life is hell and, and people are laughing at it. And that's scary when that happens. So anyway, I'm telling you all of this because I feel the media owes Tara Reid a major apology as well too. And that includes yeah. people like Perez Hilton. Uh, what they have done to her, in, and her father told me this at one point, is that, you know, the media is trying to kill my daughter. I mean, I, I will always start off by asking before I tell you the heartwarming story, and that is just please somebody answer for me. What did Tara Reid ever do to, to deserve such 
nastiness and vindictive venom. What what did she ever do? Oh, what she drank. She's been drunk in public. Um, so yeah, big deal. Right. right. I mean, big, big deal. Look at the Rolling Stones. Look at people like that. And somebody will say, well, that's the Rolling Stones. Well, you know, Tara Reid's a human being, too. Right. Young with a lot of money. Right. And a lot of fame real fast. You know, what people don't understand is that this girl at like, you know, 16, 17, walked in to one of the biggest talent agencies in the world and brokered her own deal without anybody, without a lawyer, without anyone. And, and brokered that deal. And you know, like, you know, when she came to set, she was nothing but professional. Yeah. There was no, oh, she's drunk, oh, she's this. There was nothing like that. She showed up, she ate with the crew, she came out and sat down with the crew, she posed for pictures, she signed autographs happily, she was. She showed up every day, on time, knew her lines, she was a gem to work with, and nobody wants to print that. In fact, one periodical came to the set and they said, well, we'd really like to do some interviews with Cloris and Tara. I said, I, I will not allow you to do any interviews on my set. And they're like, why? And I said, because your articles of the last two, three years have been nothing but tearing apart one of my stars, which was Tara. Yeah. And I said, if you go in and personally apologize to her, to her face, for the, the awful treatment from your magazine, then I'll let it up to her to see if she wants to give you an interview. Mm. And they did. To their credit, they went in. And they wrote a really nice piece about it, which they should. I'm wow. not, look, I'm not about censorship. What I'm saying is, so what? What? what is the crime that Tara Reid has done? Well, she did a, a crappy TV show on E! Well, big deal. So do a lot of people. Right. I mean, look, Robert Downey Jr. was a heroin junkie who ended up naked in some little boy's bed because he was so stoned out of his mind. He broke into a house and ended up in bed naked with like this 11-year-old kid. Wow. Yeah. But, but that's okay. That's right. all right. Right. Because he's Iron Man. You know, he makes $60 million a movie now. And look, look, I'm not saying anything bad about Robert Downey Jr. What I'm saying right. is, why isn't he crucified? Rob Lowe was caught on video with two underage girls banging him. That's okay. Right. Boys will be boys, I guess, right? But Tara Reid had one too many drinks. She got out of a car and somebody's waiting to take a picture of her underwear between her legs. That's that's the news, right? This is the news we have now. Right. We, we wait for crotch shots. Like, yeah. we're all... We're all in eighth grade or ninth grade in some, you know, Porky's movie, right? Yeah. Like, that's that's what it's like. So, anyway, my point is, I feel the media owes her as much of an apology. And I've written about this, and I even did a podcast episode on this. Anyway, on set of the fields, we shot at a place where there was a dog that was not being well taken care of at all. Yeah. And uh, I love the dog. I'm a big dog person, so I love <laughs> the dog, and I... I did approach the owner and I said, well, hey, you know, uh, listen, I'll give you, I'll give you like 500 bucks for the dog. Wow. Okay. And his answer was, you know, fuck off. The dog is my property. Jeez. No. And I said, well, it's obvious you don't want the dog. I mean, this poor dog, he bragged about it. He bragged that the dog was on a leash since it was nine weeks old. That's horrible. That's horrible. Right? And it had no shelter, by the way. It slept in a ditch. Oh. Right? Yeah. It slept up against a building in a ditch. It had no coop. It had nothing. That's sad. And you just go out, you throw some dry kibble into a bowl and water for the day. And the dog, when I came on this set, because we only shot there a couple days, I would take the dog off the leash at night. I'd sneak back and take the dog off the leash, and I'd walk the dog in the fields. That was the first time that dog had been off that leash in years. Ugh. So, And then when I would leave, that dog would howl. Oh, it would man. howl and it would cry. Mm. You know? 
So I was telling Tara about this. And I said, listen, I have an idea. And she's like, why? I said, would you just be an actress? She's like, sure, what do I got to do? I said, just follow my lead. So I'm going to direct you. She's like, okay. So she walked up at me, and the owner of the dog was there. And I said, hey, I said, just so you know, uh, the SPCA is, is going to be on set for uh, another scene at another location, but they have to examine all the animals in the movie no matter what. So even if the animal, it was a mouse, I think it was what it was, and then we had a bird on another location, mm. and, and I'm, I'm totally lying. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, listen, I'm going to save you $10,000. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, because when they come out to this location and see the treatment of that dog, they're going to see neglect, and they're going to hit you with a $10,000 fine. And she's standing there right with me. He looks at me, and then he looks at her. He goes, this true? She goes, Tara goes, yeah, I'm afraid that's true. Just like that, like just really calm and sincere, right? She's acting, acting, acting. Yeah. And she never cracked a smile, nothing. She was deadly serious. And the guy looked at me, he goes, take the fucking dog. And I took that dog, and that dog lived with me another four years. In fact, she already had the development of cancerous tumors Ugh. in her belly when I took her because I got her checked out. We got the cancer removed from her. She lived another four and a half years, and she lived sleeping by a fireplace and had her own little bed Aww. and redeemed that shitty life. She left the life better than when she came in. That's how I look at it. And that's because Tara. Tara helped me with it. Because that guy turned me down before. He wouldn't even take $500 cash for it. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and in Colorado, there's certain little towns that it like it's like the Arctic Circle. It gets super cold. And I always hate that because I always see that these dogs are like chained to a tree and yeah. that's where they live. Like, yeah. you know, oh, you... I know. And I can't believe people do this. I know and I can't either. That's it's... how I felt with this one. Same thing. She was chained to a metal pole. Yeah. That was it. And that's heartbreaking to me because I, you know, I love animals too. I'm a huge animal lover. And so I, my dog, we have a one and a half acre backyard where he could go and run and play. But then, you know, for the most part, he's in the house. He sleeps in the house. We have a little bed for him. Like you said, like, you know, it's just like, yeah, anybody can get a dog, but not everybody should have a dog. It's like, exactly. if it's going to yeah, stay outside exactly the whole it. time, why, why have one in the first place? That's, that's my uh, heartwarming story, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, that story stuck with me as well. So thanks for resharing it. I'm sure the people sure. enjoyed hearing that. Now, Harrison, you yourself have a podcast I didn't know about. So tell us a little bit about that podcast and how people that are listening here can find it. And when are the newest episodes released? Sure. It's called Cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. And it's a mixture of both the word cinema, like going to the cinema, <laughs> and also cynicism. And it is not about movie reviews. Uh, the movie that inspired this podcast is Jaws the Revenge, which I consider to be the worst motion picture ever made, and mostly because it's not a real movie. Jaws the Revenge was a gigantic tax break, and it was, it was a bunch of garbage forced upon us to consume. And while the ability to make a really good movie was there, they simply chose not to. And that's what I call cinema. Cinema is when you have all the means and ability, budget, celebrities, you know, behind the scenes, you know, below the line in the way of script writers and all of that. And you just simply make the conscious choice to not make anything good. That's cinema. So I look at it through our entertainment, throughout our entertainment, whether 
it's movies or television, uh, whether it's a single film or it's a franchise, uh, the point is is to look at something and really look at it and examine it and try to promote the audience who's listening to start using critical thinking skills. Uh, it's not about whether you like something or not. I'm not telling you you can't like something. What I'm saying is we should really start examining why certain things to us are so beloved when if you start really looking at things, you go, that really isn't as great as, as I really thought it was. And, and it's not to tear things down. Look, there's enough tearing down on the Internet. It's simply about offering a second view and for people to kind of use, like, like I said, just to use their own thinking skills and form their own opinion. Yeah. You know, that's what it's about. But it's not about film reviews. So uh, you can see, you can go on Apple Podcasts. I'm on Spotify. I'm on Pandora. Uh, I'm pretty much everywhere. And, you know, you can look at the episodes. I usually drop a new one every week. So I try to. I mean, not, you know, everything's not 100%. Life gets in the way. Right. Uh, but I, I always try to provide, you know, interesting, fresh content. Sometimes people give me great ideas when I'm talking with them online on Twitter. And they'll be like, you know, hey, Harrison, does this count as cinema? And, and I'll look at it and sometimes they'll say, no, look, a bad movie is not cinema. Like a, a low-budget or bad movie doesn't necessarily mean it's cinema. Look, there, it takes a lot of effort to make a shitty movie. And people don't realize that. Yeah. You know, what I'm talking about is when you have an incredible budget, like for Jaws the Revenge, which I believe was between 28 and $30 million, hmm. and you have Universal backing it, and you have all the biggest effects people at your disposal, and you still just go, nah, fuck it. People come see this no matter what we make, so just make it. Yeah. You know, just it doesn't matter if it's any good. It doesn't matter if it makes sense. It doesn't matter if a shark is psychic. <laughs> uh, you know, like, and that's what I mean. And somebody said, oh, could you hear the pitch session on? I said, that's my point. There was no pitch session on this. Yeah. Nobody pitched it. The head of Universal Studios at the time was on his way out. He figured out in the budget department, there's still like 28, 30 million for a Jaws movie. Hey, let's give ourselves a payday, right? And get out of uh, LA for three months to go shoot in the Bahamas during Christmas in the wintertime. And uh, that's what we're going to do. And that's what they did. And they knew that people would come because the title of Jaws is there. So you built, and I was one of them. I put my money down for a theater ticket. And I, you know, I'm, I'm there 30 minutes into it going, oh boy, did we get screwed on this? I thought <laughs> Jaws 3 was bad. This one is worse because I don't think Jaws 3 counts really 100% as cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, because I don't think Joe Alves intended to set out to make a bad movie. I think he really wanted to make a good movie and he wanted to entertain us. It just didn't work out that way. But Jaws the Revenge, there was no intention to entertain. That was just a heist job to fleece the, the budget department of one last motion picture and squeeze the dollars out of all of us. If it made money, great. If it didn't, oh, well, everybody who's associated with it retired. That's wild. I don't think I ever even heard of that movie before. The Jaws Revenge? Jaws. You're not missing anything, and there's probably a reason why you haven't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I've seen Jaws before, but I guess I've never seen the Jaws Revenge. To me, it's not even so bad it's good. It's just a terrible piece of product. <laughs> it's not even a film. It's product. Well, you're right. I'm glad I, I you know, I'm not missing anything then. 
You're missing zero. (laughs) Now, Harrison, you know, there's one topic I know you kind of wanted to talk about that you've mentioned on your podcast, and that being about paranormal hybrid hoaxes. Yes. All right. So I'm I'm excited to talk a bit about that. The floor is yours. Sure. Sure. I mean, you know, look, we were we were talking about things like love the, the best part. I mean, Twitter is there to further my brand. You know, I'll dabble in politics once in a while, but look, you know, as well as I do, the best thing to do is just avoid talking about politics. Yeah. Because, <laughs> um, but every once in a while you get somebody going, Hey Harrison, have you checked this out? Have you seen this? And there's something interesting going on out there. And, and look, we have all these TV shows, quote unquote reality, uh, where, you know, we're, we're ghost hunting and all that stuff. And let's face it for most of these shows, you know, 10 years on the air, and, and what do we get? We get a lot of, did you hear that? I yeah. feel cold. Something's there. Or we get, a, <laughs> what is it, Zach Baggins yelling oh, at, you know, phantoms in a room, right? You know, come out here, come get me. Like, <laughs> look, I get it. If you're entertaining people, I guess, whatever. But then there's something else that's going on as well, too, because, look, there are a number of people out there that still think that the Blair Witch Project was real, okay? They, they think that was a real thing. And, you know, looking at what just happened on January 6th and the number of people that believe all these ridiculous conspiracies and all of that, it's not hard to really fool people anymore. Okay, so you're you're looking at things now with between CGI, clever editing, and most of all, this technology is now accessible to the common people before Hollywood locked up all the major effects or, or the cost was very prohibitive. And so when people fake things it, it wasn't as uh, glossy or slick. Now, man, you can see stuff that even I look at it and go, wait a minute, is that real? Yeah. And one of the, like, for example, this deep fake technology, the face swapping technology, that's scary stuff. Right. Okay, so now you take this technological ability and there, there are a series of paranormal films out there, a haunting on, that's what they start with. They always start with a haunting on, you know, Spice Road. A haunting on this place, a haunting on. And when I started watching one of them, I thought, because everybody kept telling me, Harrison, you need to check these out. So I did. And I started watching the one. And at first, I, look, I, I went into it blind. Okay? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I don't like to look things up. I want to be entertained. Yeah. Okay. So before, like, even with uh, Star Wars Rogue One, I just went in. I, I didn't. I heard there were some reshoots. I heard, but you know, with these people back and forth, there's too much information. Oh, you're, you know, Hayden Christensen's going to show up, and I don't care. I just want to be amazed. Okay. Right. Back yeah. when I was a kid to go see Star Wars, you didn't go in with advanced knowledge. You went in from the trailer, and that was it. Yeah. So with this paranormal show, I, I sat down and I thought, okay, I'm going to watch this. I like these kind of things. So I'm sitting there, and then some of the footage that they're showing, I'm like. You've got to be fucking kidding me! Yeah, did he really? Did they really get this? This isn't more than this is more than just a night vision camera and some dust particles are floating that we call orbs and and all of that. We are looking at direct manifestations of like vapors that are forming in human form and 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 it's all it's all posed as like this. The, this is the footage that they got when they did this investigation. And what they do is, is they couch it all around real incidences. So something happened at a farmhouse. There are police reports. There were police that investigated. There are people still alive that are affiliated with the incident. Okay? 
Yeah. So that all is real. It's it's no different than the Amityville heart. People were killed in that house. Right. Ronnie DeFeo went through the house and shot them. I don't want to hear anybody in the audience go, oh, it could have been his sister. I don't care about that. Six people, I believe it was, the DeFeo family were shot in their sleep. End of story. Right. That really happened. The police reports are there. DeFeo was convicted. That's done. But then you build this bullshit, because I think Amityville was 100% bullshit. They build this bullshit haunting story around it. But what you do, see what Amityville did back in the day, the Lutzes did stuff like, oh, well, there were, you know, where they called the police. Well, then as the Internet starts taking off and people can fact check, we're finding out, no, no police were actually called. No, the weather reports for that night showed there was no snow on the ground to see pig cloven feet in, in the snow. <laughs> oh, now all of a sudden you start punching holes in this bullshit. Yeah. All right. Well, that's what's happening here, because what they're saying is, yes, uh, there, there were medical teams dispatched because someone, you know, collapsed and all of this and all of that. And yes, there were police reports filed for banging on the house and loud noises. And they build this, what I feel, and I'm going to say allegedly, okay, they build this alleged fake footage around these real incidences for someone who is in the industry like me and is skeptical by nature sitting there going wait a minute is this real like it's even giving me pause and so my point out of my podcast was to the guy that's doing this if this is real show your raw footage because james randy offered a million dollars for definitive proof of the afterlife and there you go dude you've got it like you could make hundreds of millions of dollars off this so there's a guy uh, that runs a, an account on Twitter called Hoaxi, and he got back to me. I, I, I brought this to him, and he said, well, listen, Harrison, you know, everything I'm looking at, it says bullshit. All, all signs point to bullshit. However, the, the ultimate sign is he said that uh, you know, this guy is not taking this footage to be verified scientifically, but rather they set up big screenings in the towns where these hauntings happen, and they sell lots of DVDs and merchandise, right? So right there, you follow the money, and pretty much you can see where this is going. But if you right. had definitive, I mean, I'm telling you, go watch. I don't know if you've watched any of these, but I'm telling you, in the, I think it's called A Haunting on Spice Road or Dice Road, one of those. The footage is downright chilling, okay? And then you think, wait a minute, this is just too good to be true. If, the, if this guy really got this, the scientific community would be turned on its ear. There would be no way you could deny the existence of the supernatural. And it, it always, he just happens to be in the right spot all the time. Like, there's one scene where he's sitting at a counter, and they have a Ouija board, and he's got his hands on it, and suddenly the planchette just flies out like a jet from underneath. And they caught that all on camera. And, and <laughs> yeah. he's passing this off as 100% real. And, and the point is, they staged all of this, right? Right. In my opinion, that is my opinion. Allegedly staged it. But people are out there being fooled. You know, that's the problem. This is why we have a large group of people right now out there believing that Trump is still president and will return on March 4th, okay? That they believe that vaccines are going to turn our DNA into reptilian or alien DNA, you know, because we're, we're buying into this nonsense and people are, oh, I saw it on YouTube. Well, I saw it, you know, I, I watched three YouTube videos. I'm a viral expert, okay? 
and that's what I wanted to get into. That this is this is beyond entertainment. It's it's very PT Barnum, and it's very um, you know you're really taking advantage of people because it did make me stop and go. I got so I stopped watching it halfway through, and I started like writing notes on it, and then I started doing of course some research. Which, in my opinion, came back that obviously all of this is very much staged, in my opinion. So, again, my, right. my plea on my podcast was to the filmmaker is if what you are saying this is true and not just entertainment to entertain us, release the raw footage and get it to the proper scientific communities so they can verify this. Because what you have is probably some of the greatest stuff other than finding and confirming the existence of an alien race. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I actually have not, I, once my cable bill hit over $200, I was like, I just can't do that. So unfortunately I'm without cable right now and just kind of rely on Netflix. So I guess that's why I haven't heard of that show, but with the paranormal shows, so many of them, like you said, I I've, I've talked to so many people who either have their own show or who have been featured on a show and especially the people who've been featured on the shows they're like yeah what I wanted to you know the story that happened to me the true story they kind of try to turn it into something scarier or exaggerated it by by so much and and different things like that and with me personally two years ago I had this woman approach me because she heard of an investigation that I conducted in Wilmington, North Carolina at the Museum of the Bazaar, which is a really cool place to go to. It has like Houdini's Ouija board. Oh, Harrison, it is awesome. It's like a really, really cool place. And so she heard of this and she heard that I had a book and she, she read my attachment story. And so she was like, Tessa, I would love to have you on like a paranormal show and so for over a year we were having these meetings we were talking we were having these um, phone conferences and she was like I want to do something that is so different where like hey you could um we'll go to tombstone we know you love tombstone and you could like sleep in a coffin but really you don't really have to sleep in a coffin we'll just take a few minutes of shots and I told her you know I don't like that. I was like, I I always pride myself that I don't have to, I've been investigating the paranormal for over 10 years and I've never had to fake evidence. I've never had to manipulate things or, you know, pretend like, you know, to add on voices. I was like, what I get is what I get. I don't have an audience I need to impress and I don't, I'm happy with what I get. And I said, if I'm going to sleep in a coffin, I'm going to sleep in a coffin. I'm going to spend the whole night in that coffin, no matter what. And she's like, I really respect that. I do like that. And of course, one day I I even asked, because after a year, I was like, I was talking to my dad and he's like, well, do you know how much you're going to get paid? And I said, I don't know. So I asked them and oh, well, we'll pay for traveling expenses. And that's all they really said. Nothing for my time or, you know, anything. They stopped talking to me. But it just wasn't meant to be. But that's why I'm like, I'm happy it didn't happen because I don't want to be thrown in that situation where things might not be what they are, you know, and 
that that's when my credibility kind of goes down the drain. Well, yeah, there's a simple word for that. It's called integrity. Right, you know, and that's when I'm like, nope. And so I'm happy it didn't happen. I'm, I mean, you know, I mean, I have family and friends in the industry and in the movie industry, such as yourself. My cousin through marriage is Lou Diamond Phillips. I, I have respect for the people who do it, but I'm like, no, I get, TV's just not for me. <laughs> well, right, and and that's that's what I'm saying, like, we are now in a world where the camera can lie. There used to be that old phrase, well, the camera doesn't lie. Right. Well, now it can. Yeah. <laughs> okay? I mean, now you can, just as an app, you can swap your face with Danny Trejo or Tom Hanks, whoever it is. Right. Now you can do all of this. So what happens when this technology gets into the wrong hands? And then on top of, look, there is, there is no, probably, there are very few more sensitive groups to prey upon, more vulnerable groups, than the grieving. Okay. Right. Or yep. people, look, my mom was extremely logical, data, fact-based, uh, very smart, you know, and uh, she was a nurse. She was very science-based. Yeah. But, you know, she, she died very young at 59 from emphysema. Ugh. And, you know, because of all the facts and how smart she was, she didn't realize that smoking three packs a day will fucking kill you. Ugh. So, yeah. you know, in addition to that, though, in the last... I'd say the last year or two of her life, she was really buying into all this talking with the dead stuff, right? Because you're reaching the end and you know it and you don't want it to just be over. There's a great line in Dr. Sleep. I don't know if you've seen the film, but yeah. when Ewan McGregor's D- Danny Torrance is, you know, sitting in the hospice with this one man and he just starts crying because he's dying. And he said he's afraid, and, and Danny says, well, I understand. He's like, no, you don't get it. It's not the pain I'm worried about. It's not even dying that scares me. His fear was, what if there is nothing? Like, what if I just wink out of existence? And I don't think anybody wants that. You know, right. it's, maybe the fear of dying doesn't really scare people. Maybe people go, well, it's, I, look, I have a friend that I've known since second grade, and he's fully ready to go whenever it comes hey when it comes it comes that's you're not stopping it that's it he's got a very uh fatalistic view toward it and that's fine but i understood i mean i found myself nodding in the movie theater to that what that old man was saying like that's what terrifies me what if what if we don't go on what if there is nothing and that's what scared my mother yeah okay so you know the fear that there is absolutely nothing makes you vulnerable and for example it i'm not kidding you it took an hour for her to wake up get out of bed and walk our our home her home was 45 maybe 50 feet long it was a, a small rancher house on a big fat we had a by level to get from her bedroom which was at one end of the house out to the kitchen took an hour okay wow. because she would and she'd be out of breath by the time she sat down my mother equated no the lung disease to taking duct tape, closing up your nose, putting it over your mouth and sticking a swizzle straw through the tape between your lips and trying to breathe with that. Oh my God. Okay? Yeah. So what I'm saying is, you know, toward the end, she knew what was coming and she, she knew that she had ruined it for herself. And for example, I got her approved for a double lung transplant. Okay. Wow. I got her approved. All she had to do was sign the paper and it could be 24 hours. It could be three months, 
she would when they get two lungs available, she's going in for new lungs, right? Yeah. And on 15 minutes after we got in the car, she didn't sign it. She said, I want to think it over. 15 minutes after we left the hospital on the highway, she says, you know, I'm not going to do this, right? Mm. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, no. She said, because here's the bottom line. Now, this is where her critical thinking came in. She said, if I get new lungs, first of all, there's no guarantee I'm going to be any better off than I am right now because you're on like 67 pills a day. Most of them are immunosuppressants, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But then she said, I'm just going to smoke again. Uh. And she said, that's not fair to some kid out there or somebody younger than I am that needs those lungs who didn't do this to themselves. Mm, yeah. And I said, you know, this means death. And she said, yes, I know that. No. But she goes, I'm not going to take these lungs away from somebody who really needs them and didn't do this to themselves. She goes, I'm here because of bad choices in my life, is what she said. Now, that takes a lot right. to confront your own mortality that way. But that's what I mean. So logical and so critically thinking. And yet, in the end, she drove all the way. My, fa my father drove her into Long Island. Okay, a two by the time all is said and done, two and a half hours to see one of these people, very well known celebrity, on TV who can allegedly talk to the dead. I'm like, Mom, this is bullshit. But then I realized I can't take that from her. Yeah. Like this is she needs this. And when I sat there going, Mom, really? If this guy is for real, then take him over to the World Trade Center Memorial and ask him where bin Laden is. The dead should be able to tell him where bin Laden is. It's always one of those Oh, is there a John? Does a John mean anything? You have 500 people in a room. Of course everybody knows a John. Right. Yeah. You know? Oh, the, the color blue. The color blue. Is Does this mean something to someone? I don't know. There are 250 people in the room. What do you think? Right. What do you think? You think that's going to mean something? It's called cold reading. Okay? Or you can do a hot reading like Papa. What was his name? Popoff. Peter Popoff. And have... You know, a, a thing stuck in your ear with your wife reading prayer cards backstage, reading information like addresses and phone numbers and everything right there to the guy claiming he can heal the sick and talk to the dead. So as right. angry as I was that my mother was buying into this. And here's the other thing. Your audience is probably going, wait a minute, why is this guy on, on her show if he doesn't believe? See, here's the thing. I do believe. And here's the thing. I think I've seen things that. I don't think can really be readily explained by maybe one day they can but right now what i've seen and heard in my life i'm willing to bet there isn't nothing i don't know what it is but that's how i feel and right. i have no scientific data to support that i have none I, I can't quantify it i can't detail it i can't list any facts in fact there's probably a good chance that science can disprove what i'm saying but it's something that I just have a hunch that I believe. You know, my mom was reaching at that point because she she wasn't going to be alive much longer, and she knew it. Yeah. Yeah, so, well... Sorry to go off on that trail, but I hope that makes sense. No, it does, and what a selfless thing. Like, like you know, it must have been hard for her knowing that, yeah, this is like a death sentence, basically, but she was right where it's like, I'm just going to take advantage of those lungs and be smoking again, and it might take a few years from now, but I'll be in the same situation where I'm going to be in trouble, and it might as well go to somebody else who will take care of them and whatever, but, you know, it's interesting where... When you were talking a little earlier about the the cold reading kind of thing, I know I did an episode 
oh gosh, maybe over a year ago about Houdini. And Houdini was like a huge skeptic where he would go out of his way to really just, but before he turned into a skeptic, he knew that what he would do is he would go to towns and he would get the obituaries and he would do readings and bring out these certain names of people who just died and and different things like that. So he's like, if I could bullshit people, I know you're bullshitting people. And I know what you're saying is not true. And there was one woman, I I, I would have to listen to the, my own episode again. I don't remember what her name was, but he was trying to go out of his way to the point where he was like, I know you're full of it. She would every single time get these amazing results, just like the TV show you were talking about, where it's like, no way is that possible every single time you're right there at the right place at the right time you're getting names and details and she was that what oh, what's it called that plasma stuff where it comes out and yeah ectoplasm. yeah she she was doing that every single time and he was just like no way and so when you were talking about that houdini kind of popped up in my old head but well, you know houdini had the ultimate test you know that right he he told his wife he left her a password before he died and he said listen you, you don't he didn't want to see her get rooked by all these psychics and that's a loose word because mary lincoln most people don't know mary lincoln like blew her her entire savings and family fortune trying to communicate with abraham lincoln after his death and so much so that congress had to vote her a special stipend and allowance and houdini was so outraged by Mary Lincoln being taken by these charlatans, he embarked also on this this mission to debunk all of this nonsense. Yeah. And um, he created a password. He didn't want his wife to end up like that. And he created a password with his wife. Now, from what I understand, uh, James Randi was given access to that password. And he told his wife, and it would get locked in a, a lockbox, which I think the last location of it was Chemical Bank in New York. And said, you know this word. And if you go to a psychic and they can't tell you that word, then they're not talking to me. Yeah. And James Randi kept that as part of his million-dollar challenge. A psychic should be able to contact Harry Houdini from the other side and give that word. And so far to date, no one ever has. Yeah, it was amazing. I have always been a fan of Houdini. And so that's why I was like, I need to do an episode on this guy, you know, and so and I love doing episodes like that, because it makes me it forces me to do a ton of research. And I learn a lot. Definitely well, you just said something really clear there. And that is you learn a lot. There are people they don't want to learn. Yeah, and that's the danger of social media, because people get on these websites and they become their own echo chambers. They just talk to like-minded people and they hear what only they want to hear. So they cherry pick their information and they, they hear somebody go, Oh yeah, I agree with you. Oh, I agree with you. And so you have this, this mutual admiration club online. And then if you get somebody like a scientist or somebody comes in and says, well, wait a minute, we really should. Oh, you're, you're a blasphemer. You're this, you're evil. You're mean, you're nasty. You're a Nazi. You're this. And they start throwing words to kick you out of the conversation because they don't want actual facts or reality to intervene with the illusion. You know, so Harry Houdini, of all people, who, again, he was a skeptic, but he did not rule out the potential for something paranormal or supernatural. And neither did James Randi. In fact, 
some alleged psychics like Sylvia Brown, they used to call him an atheist. And Randy said, I'm not, I'm agnostic. Uh, you look, you know, incredible claims require incredible evidence. So I just haven't seen anything yet, but I can show you where people have faked a bunch of stuff. But right. I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting to be proved wrong. And Randy said it as he got older. And I'm, I'm hoping I am wrong. I would love for somebody to prove it to me. I keep waiting. No one's done it. Yeah. Well, you never know. Maybe someday right. I've, you know, I've mean, I've, I've had some conversations with some pretty amazing mediums who actually never knew anything about me, but were able to give me details and names. And it's not like they were like able to look up stuff about me. And But then there's other times where I'm like, you are so full of it. You don't know what you're talking about. So it is interesting. There's, you know, some pretty legit great ones. But yeah, the world is just so full of a bunch of phonies as well. But Harrison, I know that you actually jumping on the paranormal train. I know that you've had some experiences and encounters. And as you know, I'm all about the paranormal, the supernatural, the bizarre, the unknown and unexplained. So talk a bit about some of your paranormal encounters, if you will. Well, I mean, you know, look, uh, we talked out in the beginning of this, we started with my grandmother. Yeah. And when I took care of my grandmother in her last couple weeks, she was alive. And one of the things that I always tell, and, and this is coming straight from her. Now, my grandmother, if you see the fields, my grandmother was very matter of fact. There was no bullshit with her. Yeah. Very straightforward. And she was not prone to hallucination or anything. And by the time she was approaching her end, her mind was still very much with her. She did not have Alzheimer's or dementia. Uh, she was not confused or anything like that. Very, very straightforward. And she was living alone because my grandfather died in 1989. Mm. Now she passed, oh, she, I'm doing it right. She died, she died in 1994. And about six months before she died, I came down, I used to, I used to either call her or visit her every Sunday. If I wasn't working, I came down. Oh. And um, I would do her groceries or take care of her. You, know, you need anything done, you need anything lifted, <laughs> uh, take laundry up and down the step, whatever she needed. Yeah. And I came down, uh, one afternoon and I came up the back steps, which were very long. They were, they were like 20 some steps. It was very long incline. And my grandmother had bad knees. She had arthritis in her knees. Mm. So she was pained a lot to walk. She could still walk, you know, but it was, it was a chore. Yeah. And I came up the back steps and I came and I had a key. I let myself in and the TV was playing, but there was nobody in the house. I looked in all the rooms, like, what the hell? And then I thought, oh, my God, she fell down the basement steps. And I opened up the basement door, fully expecting to see her at the bottom of the steps. Nothing. Mm. And just then, the phone rang. And it was her neighbors. And I picked up the phone, and they said, are you looking for your nanny? I said, yeah. She said, well, she's over here. And then the neighbor said, so she, they said, she's been here since about 4.30 in the morning. Oh. And I'm like, what? So I get over there. And she's all befuddled. She's just like, oh, it's nothing. It's nothing. And not long after my grandfather died back in 89, there are people out there, I'm sure you know this, that they look in the newspapers for obituaries and they know when like old people are left alone, especially women, or they even know when you're having the funeral and they'll come rob your house while your house is empty. Right. They know everybody's yeah. at the funeral kind of thing. And uh, somebody did try to break into uh, the garage down below. Uh, about a week or so after my grandfather died. Jeez. So I thought somebody did this again. And I said, did somebody try to, she's like, no, 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 I don't want to talk about it. 
she didn't want to talk about it because she was afraid what she was going to tell me, I would consider her losing her mind and we would put her in a home. Aww. She was fiercely independent and she did not want to go to a, a nursing home at all. Yeah. And she was terrified to tell me. Now, Aww. I looked at, she came down the back steps. The back steps are really a chore for her. Like, it probably took her time to get down those steps. So whatever happened scared her enough to, to go down those steps, right? And then to go bother her neighbors at 4.30 in the morning. So something happened that spooked her. Wow. I got her back to the house. She lit up a cigarette. She's sitting at the table. She's smoking. She's having her coffee. And I finally, I said, man, what the hell happened for real? I said, I'm not going to put you in a home. I'm not going to do anything like that. But you got to tell me. I yeah. said, I need to make sure you know you're safe here. Right. And she said, all right. And finally, and you could tell, it took a lot for her to tell me this. She said, because you know how old people are. They, they get up at the rise of dawn and they go to bed at sunset, you know? Right. And she got up at like 4 in the morning, 4.15 in the morning, because she said, get up to take care of my grandfather. Right? She'd get up and prepare his lunch for the day because he went to work and all that. So it's a habit. You know, she did it for how many years? Decades. Yeah. And she said, I came down the hall, and she said, your grandfather was sitting at the kitchen table. Wow. And, and she said, he looked at me and said, not to worry, we would you know, be getting together soon, that he was okay. And she goes, I got so scared, I left. Oh, wow. Now, this is the same grandmother, just so you know, that endured that whole thing when our house came under attack, like in the fields. Okay? Yeah. She was a tough bird. Right. So whatever it was, and that was not a hallucination, okay? It was enough to scare her out of her own home at 4.30 in the morning and trouble her neighbors. Right. And Incredible. not go back. She knew I was coming down. So right. she waited. Oh, bless her so, heart. Wow. So anyway, about, I'm going to say about a month later, she collapsed on the front lawn getting the, the mail. Oh. And... We took her to the hospital, of course, and we found that she had a, a cancer tumor the size of probably, they said it was like almost the size of a, a tennis ball. Oh, my God. Uh, between her lungs and her heart. Oh. And it was terminal. It was inoperable. And she would never survive chemo. She was you know, too frail for that physically. It would, the, the chemo would kill her. Oh. So she was diagnosed as terminal. And we knew that it, it wouldn't be long. So anyway, we, we took her to my father's home where, she, you know, we set up hospice in the home and I had a friend who worked in hospice. She was a head nurse there. So she helped organize it and she was taken very good care of, you know, that the whole point for me was I always promised her she'd never go to a home. Yeah. So she's not going to a home. And, you know, so we, we took really good care of her. I, look, she saw me in, I'm going to see her out. Right. That's how I looked at it. She was in the hospital the day I was born and saw me after I came out. I'm seeing her out the door. Yeah. So it was really important. I ended up taking, I was working at a movie theater at the time. I was a manager. I took a leave of absence till this was over. I, I told them, expect about two weeks, 10 days to two weeks kind of thing. Yeah. So one night, I, I had the night shift. I took care of her overnight. That meant taking care of her oxygen hoses, you know, getting her water, just taking care of her, getting her uh, pain-killing medication throughout the evening. And uh, one night, I was, uh, then I wasn't, married at that time to my my uh, wife that I subsequently divorced <laughs> but <laughs> at that time we were dating yeah and I it was we went out to dinner and it was one of those the nurse told me she said you know 
mothers don't like to die in front of their sons. They will always try to sneak out is what they will do. You know, she said, your grandmother is still holding on very strong. She's still feisty, all of that. You know, somebody has to let her know it's okay to go. And so one night I was sitting there. I was getting ready to do my shift, and we went out to to get a dinner real quick at a restaurant, at a diner. And I I don't know what I ate, but I got, like, really sick. Like Mm. an hour, less than an hour after I ate. It must have been some kind of food poisoning. Oh, wow. But... And not to be too graphic with your listener, but it was coming out both ends, like really, really oh, bad. That's the and worst. And I almost thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to sit up with her through. I have the night shift. Oh, no. But I did it. I went home, showered up, cleaned up, took some medicine, and okay, I'm going to do this, right? I'm going to yeah. sit with her anyway, and hopefully it'll be an easy night on me. So I'm sitting there reading a book, and I have a little bedside table with a little lamp, and she's sleeping soundly, and all of a sudden she started sitting up. And it was hard for her to sit up because of the tumor. It was painful. Yeah. But she started sitting up and she was reaching up to the ceiling. Mm. Like her fingers are moving and she's reaching like she wants to go somewhere. And then she laid back down and she went back to sleep. And I'm staring at this. I'm watching this whole process. I was fascinated. Yeah. Then she opened her eyes and she looked at me and she smiled. (laughs) She said, you were sick. And I said, excuse me? I said, what? Now, she didn't know. I didn't tell anybody. The only one who knew was my future wife. Yeah. Like, that was it. I didn't tell anyone. You know, it's not something you really want to advertise to people. Right. Right? I was puking and crapping all over the place, you know? Like, that's just what you want to tell people. Right. <laughs> so here I am telling it on a public podcast. So, <laughs> anyway, I said, I leaned over and said, how do you know that? And she just smiled at me. I said, who told you that? And she just smiled and she went, he did. Mm. I was like, what are you talking about? So then uh, the next night, she did it again. And then the next morning, I said to her, Nanny, what, what are you dreaming about? She said, ah, I don't want to tell you. And I said, no, what, what is it? She goes, all right. And then she finally did say, she said, your grandfather comes to visit me. And we were walking through his garden. He, had, he used to have these big gardens. He loved his gardens. Mm. And she's like, and he told me that it's okay to go. that everything is good here with the family and it's okay if I want to go. And I said, Oh yeah. I said, what do you think about that? Hmm. And and she said, I don't know. I don't know. She goes, now I don't want to go to a home. Don't go telling any, because she had no idea she was terminal. Yeah. We didn't tell her. It it was decided by her sons not to tell her. I didn't think that was the way to go, but they're her sons. They chose it that way. Yeah. They made it out like, okay, you're just here until you get better and then you're going to go home. So then finally it was, I'd say maybe eh, two, three days later, I said, she said to me in the afternoon, she said, when are you going back to work? I said, oh, don't worry. I said, I took some vacation time. It's summer. Oh. And then I walked up to her because there was a fair in town and we were going to go to the fair that night. I said, I'm going to go to the fair and then I'll be back after the fair for my shift with you. She went, okay. And I leaned into her ear and I said, listen, Manny, you do what you have to do. That's what I told her. (laughs) And then we left. And the whole night I was at the fair, I was like, I want to be back before 10 o'clock. I want to be, there was something in me about, I want to be back before 10 o'clock. Wow. So we we got back before 10 o'clock. It was like ah, 9.15, 9.30, somewhere there. And I walked in by myself my stepmother was out in the kitchen my uncle was in the house somewhere but i was the only one with her 
in in the care room. It was a big living room that we had turned into a, a hospice room, a palliative care room. And I reached out and I took her hand and she was sleeping very, very soundly. You know, just no sign of distress, not gasping. Like you would never know anything was wrong with her. Yeah. And then here's what here's the part I can't explain. I could feel it. There was something happening in the room that if you live in the country and you know a thunderstorm is coming, you can feel the storm. Right. Um, you can feel like that electric or whatever it is. I could feel it. And then suddenly it was like going up my arm. It felt like I was had my hand on a very low voltage uh, electric fence. And it was going up my arm to the point that the back of my neck, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And it was so alarming to me, but it wasn't painful. And I yelled out really loud. I said, you better get in here. And maybe a second or two after I yelled that, she went, <gasps> and oh my she was God. gone. It felt so incredible <sighs> that I'm standing there with this. I, my uncle told me I had this ridiculous smile on my face. And when they walked in, I looked at both of my stepmother and my uncle and I said, she's gone. Right. I didn't even have to feel for a pulse. That was it. And suddenly she looked different. Like suddenly it looked like she was a cocoon. It yeah. wasn't really her anymore. Right. Her face had gone sunken. Um, suddenly she looked really, really old. I can't explain it. And my uncle looked at me and he goes, why are you smiling? And I said, I don't know, but I feel really fucking good. Like I felt it was the greatest high. I, I've never experienced anything like it. No, no high, no, no drinking, no orgasm. Nothing made me feel like I was, I, I felt I could go outside and run seven miles and lift two cars. Oh my That's God. what I felt like. I never had it again. I never had it before, yeah. and I've never had it again. Oh. And it was it was incredibly exhilarating. That's the feeling that I had, and that's when I I felt in my gut. You, you can't tell me that there's nothing after we die. Like whatever it was passed through me. That's how I feel. That is just phenomenal. I got goosebumps when you were talking about that, Harrison. Thank you for sharing such an incredibly yeah, you're sweet story. I mean, yeah, that is what an incredible experience that you got to have. And I have not seen the fields. I need to see if I could get it online or Walmart or something. But I really do. Oh, want it's, it's everywhere. You can find it on Tubi TV. It's on right now. It's on Peacock on NBC. Okay. Um, it's everywhere. You can find it anywhere and you can buy it on DVD on Amazon. Okay. Yeah. I, it's neat. Just the way you talk about your grandma, as you know, my great aunt just passed away a couple of days yes. ago and I, I just posted this like beautiful tribute online and so many people were like, I just reading that I, I, you know, I could tell she was a special woman and the memories you guys had and. It's just there's certain people like my great aunt and your grandma that you know that your life is better for knowing them and for having them in your life. And, you know, that we were lucky to have these special, incredible women to look up to and to laugh with and to love wholeheartedly. And I, you know, and it brings me comfort to know that, like, my great aunt, she had dementia. She was in pain. She was blind. Now I know, and her, her husband, my Uncle Dick, he died 
probably over 30 years ago. She never went on a date. She she never, you know, she full-heartedly just loved him and missed him so much. And so with me, I know she's not here anymore and that really kills me, but I know that she is with her true love again and that she's not blind and she doesn't have dementia. And, and just like your grandma, she doesn't have cancer. She doesn't have that horrible tumor. She just, uh, they're vibrant again and she's you know she's reunited with your grandpa and that brings me comfort knowing that kind of thing you know well i mean like i said you know anybody could punch holes into that you know there's there's no problem punching holes in anything that i said and and i welcome that you know because it's just one of those things that you know when we say this in jokingly in, in life and that is you know well, you had to be there <laughs> that's really what it is it was one of those moments where you literally had to be there Right. And even if somebody was there, they wouldn't have experienced because they weren't me. I know what I felt. You know, I wasn't drunk. I had not been drinking. I wasn't high. There was nothing like that. I was I was in full control of my faculties. And like I said, I've never experienced anything before or after. I was not in the same room with my mother when she died. She died. You know, I got the call that she had died. Um, so I, I had no ability to to be there to see if that kind of thing would happen again. Um, if I had been in the same room with my mother, I surely would have been in physical contact with her. I would have been holding her hand, uh, something like that. But I was not. I was separated. And I saw nothing. I mean, there was no wisp of smoke that went up or tendrils of, of mist. There was The lights didn't flicker. There, there was nothing like that. There was nothing dramatic like you see on these shows or in movies. It just simply, it was a, a transference. That's how I feel. That's amazing. I, I love that you shared that that incredible experience for sure. Harrison, before we end this, I want to talk real quick about Death House. We talked about the fields and the your movie Death House. I remember when I had you on the radio show and you were talking about it and I was like, you know, we're going to be recording tomorrow. I want to go to see if I could find Death House. So I went to Walmart and it was there in the bin and I was so excited. Oh, yeah. I was like, this is it. So I took it home and, you know, this movie is so jam-packed with several huge horror movie fans such as Kane Hodder, the late Gunnar Hansen, Dee Wallace, the late Sid Haig, uh, you know, R.A. Mihailov. You have so many others. I really enjoyed that movie. It was really a fun one, to a neat one to watch. Tell the folks real quick about that movie and were there any neat behind the scene moments with such a huge cast? I can only imagine what went on that we don't know about. <laughs> sure. It was, uh, it, it was billed as the Expendables of Horror, which I never supported. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a mis misnomer. And, and it's really a false claim because, unfortunately, even though it's a double-sided sword on this because, in one respect, it gets people to remember the movie, right? Like, oh, The Expendables of Horror. So instantly comes to mind you have a lot of horror names in it. The problem with it is it created the illusion to people that it was going to be like Kane Hodder playing Jason again and Tony Todd was going to be Candyman, that kind of thing. No, it, it wasn't that at all. No matter how many times I explained it in the early days before we started filming, people just weren't listening. They, they still went into the film, a lot of them, thinking, well, Robert Englund's going to show up in the Freddy makeup, and it's not going to be a monster mashup. That's yeah. not what it's going to be. So making the film was, was a huge process. Gunnar Hansen tried for years to get it made. Uh, I was approached uh, simply because 
I just had success with Zombie Killers with Billy Zane and Dee Wallace. And I rewrote the script uh, with Gunner's blessing. I, I submitted all my changes and ideas to him. He signed off on all of them. Mm. Uh, at the time, I didn't know he was terminal. No. Uh, so, you know, it was one of those things. It was He was quietly very urgent to get this done. He wanted to know that it was going to get made before he left us. Right. So... Anyway, I mean, the making of the film was a pleasure. It really, truly was. You would think with all these vast names and, you know, all, all these people coming from different walks of horror that you'd have divas or, you know, just attitudes. You couldn't find a nicer group of people than horror people to make a movie with. I mean, yeah, kind and, and giving and very just happy to be there is how they were. So it was an extremely pleasurable experience. It was shot by Coastal here on the East Coast and then on the West Coast. Uh, we, it just, it couldn't have been a more pleasant experience making that movie. So the, the best behind the scenes that I can tell you, and there were a number of them. I mean, Kane Hodder is funny as hell. Uh, you know, Bill Mosley, Barbara Crampton. I mean, just so many really nice people that not only are just, look, I'm not a fan. Let's, let's make it really clear here. I, I, I think fandom has become something very perverse because fan is really short for fanatic. And fanatic implies mental instability, in my opinion. And there are a number of franchises and even genres that have been ruined by fans. They're, they're no longer fun because the fans have just ruined it. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that goes for it. Like even Marvel or DC and all of that stuff. And I know people that have read Marvel comic books since they were eight years old who said they're no longer being written for kids. The new comic books are being written for fans. They're being written for 30-some-year-old men. And that's a problem because it creates a very ridiculous culture out there where Kane Hodder is a man. He is a person. He is not Jason Voorhees. Okay? He's, he's just a normal guy. He's got a family. He was a stuntman. He, he suffered incredibly for his art. Uh, to, to perform for people, but he's just a man. That's it. And a lot of these people forget that. So I don't. And so what I want when I meet people like this is to learn from them. And I ask them questions not to be condescending or to highlight that they're old or older. That's not the point. The point is they have experienced things. Barbara Crampton has been in the genre and especially through the genre while it, it transformed. It went from where a movie like Reanimator or From Beyond could get, you know, a basic theatrical release. Well, that doesn't happen anymore now. What happened? What what happened where small horror can no longer get, you know, like Halloween, if it were released today, it'd go right to streaming. It wouldn't have gotten a theatrical release and become the phenomenon that it became. Yeah. So in in saying that, I always wanted to talk with them. Not about, oh, what was it like to be on set of Friday the 13th, Kane? And you know that scene where Jason... I don't want to do that. Okay, because I really, honestly, I don't care. I don't really give a shit. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> I love horror, but I don't care. You know, what, Kane, what was in your pocket when you came out of the water in this? I don't care. <laughs> so, and that's, that's a problem. I really do think that's a problem. What I do want to know is... You know, what was the structure like of, of your deal with Paramount? And you know, why didn't you return for this, but you, you came back for that? And, you know, what were they thinking behind the scenes? What was the director really wanting to do? What was the original storyline? Like, that's what I want to know. I want to know about production. I want to know what artistic choices were made for the franchise to get us where we are now. 
And one of the biggest opportunities that I had for this was to sit down for two days in a row with Sid Haig. Mm. And just, Sid sat down, he's like, well, I guess you want to hear about Rob Zombie? I'm like, no, I really don't. I said, Sid, I want you to tell me everything you can in the time we have. He's like, why is that? I said, I want to know, how did you get into this industry? What are the changes you've seen? You've made some big films, and you've made small, tiny, crappy films. You've worked for Roger Corman. You've worked for Rob Zombie. You've worked for the big ones. you worked for Sid Sheinberg. Tell me about this. Mm-hmm. And he did. And I learned so much from him. Not fan stuff. I don't care about Captain Spaulding. I yeah. don't care. I want to know about the industry. What has he seen? What was it like? to be working with Roger Corman on the alien ripoff Galaxy of Terror. How did you come to it? How'd they get that made? How'd they deal with the rights on that? And most of all, it got a theatrical release. Like, how did that happen? Right. And he would talk to me about everything. That's what I wanted to know. I wanted to know industry education. Because he's seen it all. He's seen the, the way that the movies have changed, the way that they're created, the way that they're released. He's seen it all. So that's what I wanted. And one last story about Sid was when Death House had its sneak preview uh, at, a, at a convention, which is what Gunner wished for. That was his wish. He came up to me. Sid said, all right, we're going to watch this tonight. With, you know, first, first crowd, first reaction. He goes, please tell me you have audience reaction cards. I said, I do. He goes, let me see them. So I gave him the, the card. And he looks at it. He goes, yep, this, this all looks good. And he said, now listen to me. He said, you have a scale of 0 to 10, with 10 being the best, 0 being the worst. I go, right. Let me tell you a little something. He goes, you want a small stack of zeros, ones, and twos. That's what you want. And he said, you want a bigger stack of 7, 8, 9, and 10. I'm like, right. He goes, what you don't want is a large stack of fives. And I said, okay. And he goes, the reason why is if you come back with a large stack of fives, that means your movie made no impression on anyone. Hmm. He said, however, even if you have the zeros, it doesn't matter because that is eliciting a response. He said, hate is a response. They reacted. They reacted negatively, but they still reacted. He said, five means no reaction. That's what every filmmaker wants to avoid. Boom, instant education right there. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but that makes total sense. Yeah, because this is a man who's been in the business for 50 years. Right. Oh, incredible. No, that's very neat. Yeah, guys, so Death House, it's a good one to watch. It's on Prime. You can get it on Prime. It it ran almost two years on Netflix. It's on video. You can get it on DVD. You can get it on Blu-ray. Yeah. It's on on 2B TV, I think. It's on Voodoo. It's on... uh, like I said, Prime, it's everywhere. Death House is everywhere. Yeah, and it has everyone. I mean, an amazing cast for sure. And so, you know, I have to agree with you when I liked how you said that you were, you know, some people were expecting like divas, but no, like they're kind hearted and loving and grateful and gracious. They and, really were. You they know, were the nicest people. It's, it's almost... It's just too ironic to think that they've been in some of the bloodiest, goriest, (laughs) violent horror movies, and they are just the kindest, sweetest people. Right. (laughs) No, absolutely. You know, I, as a kid, I lived in New Mexico for a few years, and my family, it's not ours anymore, but we owned a Mineral Springs resort, 
And we got a lot of people going through there. Like uh, through my time of being there, I had met Pierce Brosnan, Jerry Springer, just like a bunch of people. One of the people I worked in the, in order to go to the pools and to the mud bath and spa and, you know, we had arsenic pools and different things like that. You had to go through to pay for your ticket for the day and to go through this little building where a little gift shop was. And I was in that gift shop. Several times I had the pleasure of meeting Robert England and I, I mean, he was such a nice guy. I've been Very a nice lifelong horror nutball. I, I just love, you know, when people, little girls were playing with Barbies, I was into the boogeyman and, and all those scary stuff. And for this person who's so into the horror world, I was so excited as a little kid to see him several times knowing yeah. i was like that's freddy fucking krueger this is awesome <laughs> yeah and and the thing is in real life like you said he is just a very generous person he was not able to make death house because of his filming schedule yeah uh, i think it was even a convention he was going back and forth between california canada and scotland and when the wow. money moved we already had his letter of intent to be in the film and when the money moved it's like i i, I don't know if i can get out of these they're all contracted and it's like, you know, we're, of course, we're not going to sue Robert Englund because hey, we have a letter of intent. It's non-binding. It just means that, yeah, if, if everything goes, yeah, I'll be in it if I can. Kind right. Of but um, he tried to work it out that he was home. I'm not kidding you. He was home for one day in California. And he said, let's try to get the film crew into my backyard. I'll shoot whatever you need Aww. to make it into the film. Like that's the kind of guy he was. Yeah. And we just couldn't get the crew together at that point in time. And I'm on the East coast and he's out there on the West coast and it right. just didn't work. And we didn't want to do a bad one, you know, like a bad version of it. So it's like, it's better that it's not. But then I saw him about a year later at a convention. We were both at a convention and he saw me in the bar and he came in. He's like, Hey, get over. I'm buying you a drink. No. I'm like, okay. And we sat down and he's like, let me tell you, he goes, I kick myself every day that I couldn't do that for you. He goes, I'll, I'll, if you ever make a sequel, I'm in, you know, and the whole, like, he was just so apologetic and very, very kind. Oh, you know? what a sweetheart. Yeah, there's, the, I wish there were more people like that out there. Just so incredibly, just the well, kind are, they person. They just don't get the press. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Harrison, you know, we're about to end this, but, you know, I feel like we started with Cloris Leachman. Let's end with her just real quick. Besides the fields, what's your favorite Cloris Leachman movie? Wow. Well, I mean, the big <laughs> one, of course, is always Young Frankenstein, but oh, I gotta good. tell you, man, I love her so much. I, I loved her in, um, you know, Last Picture Show, of course, but... I'm, I'm going to say it's it's high anxiety. Her nurse, Diesel, was just fantastic. And I, I'm i a big nurse Diesel fan, <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with high anxiety. Okay, yeah, that is, yeah, definitely. You know, me, I, now this might be goofy, but I really enjoyed her. First of all, in Beverly Hillbilly, she was so cute in that, but. Yeah, it's Granny. No one else could have done Granny. Oh, I know. You know other, than, other than the original actor. Yeah, right. And another one was, I'm a huge Broken Lizard fan. I love Super Troopers. Not the second oh, yeah. one so I much, but I I loved her in Beer Fest. I Beer love Fest. it when she's yeah. like, and that summer sausage. <laughs> she's like yeah. warming the sausage up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what I'm saying. She, she shined in whatever she did. Yeah. 
rest in peace, Cloris. You'll be greatly missed. But um... <laughs> I'm sure wherever she is, she's raised in hell. So <laughs> we're playing a piano. <laughs> well, I hope so. Well, big shout out to Harrison Smith. Thank you so much for being on. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Oh, it was a great time. And thanks for having me on. And hope you get some good feedback from your listeners. Delicious looking friends. Come in. And some sausage. <laughs> I do love that part when she's. Neat guy for sure. Be sure to check out his podcast and be sure to check out his movies as well. Did you enjoy this week's episode? I'll take that as a yes. Listen to the others, you guys. They are all pretty fantastic. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry. Just head on over to any of the podcast platforms such as CastBox, Spotify, Podcast Republic, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Deezer, wherever you may roam to hear your other awesome podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcasts lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Gypsum, Colorado, Live Oak, Texas, Sellersville, Pennsylvania, Huntley, Illinois, and Montreal, Canada. As always, you guys, thank you so much for listening. Subscribe, write a review, email me with your paranormal stories at paranormal.prowlers.podcast at gmail.com. See you next week.